Each of these books covers um, life in Judah after the return from exile in Babylon. Um, and as you would expect, having gone through two whole, we'll call them semesters, uh, seasons of Old Testament survey, uh, things don't go swimmingly, unfortunately. Um, but there is some, some, some common background and, and some common situations that give rise to these books. Um, in fact, in the introduction there, I wrote, you know, expectations and the allure of regular life. Struggles with regular life as the, uh, the exiles have returned to the land and unmet expectations and disappointment about life, religious life in general, what God is doing, gives rise to these three books. And so because they kind of share a common theme and a common background and a common context, we're going to take them all together. We're going we're gonna to do a lengthier historical narrative. Here's what's happening. Here's why these prophets get rose up. Here's what they said, why they said it. Um, and after kind of going through that, then we'll take each one kind of briefly together, or separately, I should say, um, talk about their structure, their themes, relevant passages, and the like. So that's the outline for this morning. Um, and uh, with, why don't we pray, and we'll jump right into things. Lord, it's, again, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be getting to walk through your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would just grant us uh, open minds and soft hearts and that we would see the relevance and the, the, the practical beauty of these books in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one more slight, quick introductory word. If we were to, if I were to say, you know what, I'm, I am grossly unprepared. We are just going to read these books this morning and do nothing else. Um, the, 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 the adjectives that you might use to describe these books, um, if you're talking about Zechariah, would be confusing. Um, if it was Haggai, it would be ridiculously specific to a very unique and one-time issue that has only happened once in the history of God's people. Um, and Malachi would be a little bit more generic. And so I, I trust as we go through this background and this context and you kind of hear what God's people are dealing with and why these books uh, are what they are and, and, and why these prophets were raised up to say what they're going to say, that you can see yourselves in Israel's shoes or Judah's shoes um, to make them more, more applicable. Okay, so uh, what exactly is happening? So this is post-exile, just by way of reminder, the people of God have been split into two kingdoms. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is wiped off the map by Assyria. They're actually beaten back and uh, the people displaced to the north. And a new group of people are brought in to the land where the northern kingdom was. That group of people uh, eventually, through a lot of interesting uh, uh, situations, adopt the worship of God, uh, but they are not Jews. We call them Samaritans. Um, and they've been in the land for quite some time. They kind of become relevant in the story later. But fast forward a couple of centuries, and Judah, under the watchful eye of the prophet Jeremiah, is warned about their transgressions, that they'll be carried away into Babylon if they continue in sin. They continue in sin, and Babylon comes in and smashes Judah, actually on multiple occasions, and deports groups of people to, to Babylon, to Nineveh. Uh, there are multiple deportations, but the big and important one is in 586 BC. That's when Babylon has enough of um, Jewish revolt, 
and they burn the temple to the ground, and they set fire to the rich, important parts of Jerusalem. And that's after having you know, beaten back the whole country. Um, fast forward a few decades after that, and the Babylonian Empire is taken over by another empire, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so Babylon is no longer there, but the Medo-Persians have taken over all of Babylon's territory until you get to a guy by the name of Cyrus the Great, and in 539 BC, so roughly 50, 48, roughly 50 years later, Cyrus, um, he issues a proclamation, 538 BC, that the Judeans can return to their home. So, yay, excellent, they get to come home. Um, but there are a couple of pieces of context with that that are really important to keep in mind that frame our story. And the first one uh, is the why of the return. So Cyrus's actual decree is recorded in Ezra 1. I'm going to read it. It's a lengthier passage. Listen, as I do this, though, to the why behind God's allowing the people to return to the land. Uh, this is Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings to the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So, question, why is it that God directed the people to return? What was the main thing that God wants them to accomplish? Not rhetorical. Rebuild the temple, absolutely, 100%. Now, we have done a lot of review of Old Testament books. Does anybody want to raise their hand and say, this went really well, no problems whatsoever? No one? Really? I'm, I'm shocked. No, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't go well. Couple of, of important reasons as to why. So remember, 586 is when the temple fell. There were a few deportations that took prior to that, but 538 is this decree. So that is, this is 48 years, almost 50 years later. later. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two is that when the people were going into exile, God, through Jeremiah, gave them a command. And the command was, buckle up, strap in, make the most of your time in exile. In essence, he's, he's, he's telling them, don't expect there to be some like rescue wagon that happens on the way. Don't expect this to last you know, two weeks and God to relent. You're going to be there for the long haul. Marry, have kids, buy land, get jobs, strap in, you're going to be there. And so the people did exactly that. We have Babylonian records that actually indicate that many of the Judeans prospered. Um, the, the third point of context that's important is not all Judeans were taken into captivity in the first place. When Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and, uh, and Judea as a whole, he didn't take every single person. He left a bunch of people uh, remaining in the land. And that's important because 
if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you want tax revenue. You want wine and food and, and, and profit. And so, of course, you're going to leave some people in the land. But that meant now there are two sort of groups of Judeans, right? Those who remained and those who left. And that last point is especially important for what happens uh, immediately when Judah returns to the land. So let's play a game. We have two groups of people in this room, right? We've got this side and we've got this side. So let's pretend that y'all are the Judeans who go over to Babylon, which means you guys are the ones that are left. And that's about right because it was the smaller number of people who were taken and the larger number of people who remained. So just look at this group of people over here. You've got people of all different ages, right? 50 years from now, some of them are not going to survive, no offense. Um, some of them are going to have kids. Some of them are going to have grandkids, maybe great-grandkids, depending. So, fit, and, and again, they, they bought land, they got married, they, 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 they you know, I'm looking at, at Tobia right now because she's cute. Um, you know, her kids will have never known anything at all about the place where she was born. She will know nothing about the place where she was born. They would be, you know, Babylonian, still so Jewish, obviously, but, but Babylonian in culture um, and, and experience for their entire life and their kids' lives. So not everybody is going to want to come back. Not everybody's going to want to come back. Within families, there are going to be struggles. Maybe, uh, maybe grandpa, who remembers the temple when he was a kid, remembers Jerusalem, he wants to come back, but he's dependent on you know, his kids for you know, livelihood, safe travel, etc., and they don't want to come back. You may have situations where husbands and wives are in disagreement about the issue. This is not necessarily a full-throated return to the land. And um, it's not entirely clear how many remained. We know about 50,000 returned to the land. Um, and I can't find any historic source for some of the numbers that are thrown out there. Um, but more over and over and over again, the consensus seems to be that the majority of Judeans remained in Babylon. And we certainly know that many did. Um, Esther, Mordecai are great examples of those who stayed. Um, and actually, this command to sort of like strap in and make the most of your time, this may be the most obeyed commandment that the Jewish people ever did in the history of God's word. I mean, the Jews were still there up until the 20th century in that land. I mean, they obeyed this hard. Um, and so we definitely know people, you know, didn't, didn't return. And there are, there are actually multiple waves of returnees that happened after Cyrus's decree. But the point is, is... Not all of you and all of your families came back. But we got to talk about you guys now because, because y'all left, you guys stayed. And so what do you think you did when they left? You know, this was, if this was modern day and, you know, let's say, let's say California was attacked by Florida and because they have more guns per capita than we do, they, they, they win. And, you know, Sacramento gets carted off over to, uh, you know, to, to Tallahassee, like, we would solve the affordable housing crisis in Sacramento pretty quick, wouldn't we? All of the remaining people are going to take over the houses and the fields and the lands of the folks who left, which is exactly what you deplorables did. You, did, you took over everything else. I mean, you, you just kind of took over and, 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 and ran the land. And that'd be one thing if these guys came back two weeks later, you could kind of sort that out. But 50 years later, your grandkids who've been working that field or playing in that backyard or whatever else, when they return... Who, who wants to think that went swimmingly well as well? Who wants to think that it was a really easy thing to sort of uh, separate who gets what and who should live where? Also, no hands. I'm shocked. Okay, so yes, it was difficult. It was painful. There was tension. There was conflict. 
And so because of that, what that meant was the people who returned, who have the directive to build a temple, your kind of like daily life stuff is, is up in the air a little bit. You don't have a place necessarily to return to, someone squatting in your ancestral house or, or land. Um, how you're going to live, it becomes a question. There are now these two camps of people. Um, and so there are day-to-day, regular life conflicts that have occurred. And what that has resulted in is a delay in building the temple. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not like these returnees came back and decided to not rebuild the temple. First thing they did was they came back and they restarted the sacrifices. Um, That happened almost immediately. I think it was, uh, and then in 536 BC, so just two years or so after Cyrus's decree, they began to rebuild the temple. Um, and it wasn't just this whole like inter-life stuff that resulted in conflict and the temple being laid. Uh, the Samaritans that I mentioned earlier, they took an active role in opposing the building of the temple. Um, and there was a implicit maybe third reason that we see in, in, in the books that we're covering today as to why the temple maybe took a little bit longer than it should have, and that was disappointment. Um, we, we literally read... Um, uh, that when, I think it was Haggai, uh, when, the, when the, the plumb line of the temple, it was like the foundation is, is being poured essentially, people recognized it's much smaller. It is dinkier and more puny than the previous temple. And there are some who wept over it. There are some who scoffed over it. And so there seems to be sort of a pretty pervasive feeling of disappointment. God actually in Haggai has to encourage them to not be disappointed in the temple that's being rebuilt. So Political opposition, struggle putting food on the table, and what is this tiny thing we're building? Is it really important? Kind of conspire together to stop the people from doing what they were charged to do, which is to rebuild the temple. Now, of all of those those, uh, uh, reasons that I just listed for the temple being delayed, um, God is clear that the primary reason why the people delayed was that regular life stuff, the um, uh, there, you know, we'll, we'll see this actually in Haggai in chapter one uh, when we get to it in a little bit. But that's the main reason why they didn't build the temple. And so because of that, God doesn't let them get their affairs in order. He afflicts the land with drought, with famine. Um, again, we'll see this in Haggai chapter one in a little bit. Because the people didn't build the temple, the Lord afflicted the land. And so in graciousness, God calls two prophets up. Haggai and Zechariah, and their jobs, um, this is a little bit of an asterisk with Zechariah, but their job is to tell the people to get on it and to rebuild the temple. And um, if you have read Haggai recently or, or, or plan on reading it soon, you know, a couple chapters, you will see it explicitly about this. Haggai especially basically tells the people, you're told to build the temple, stop prioritizing your own lives, Build the temple, stop scoffing at the temple, build the temple, I will bless you. That's Haggai in a nutshell. Zechariah is more complicated. But they both ultimately end up encouraging the people, preaching to them to rebuild the temple. And after about 16 years of neglect, the people do exactly that. And they they rebuild the temple in earnest. So Haggai and Zechariah show up at about 520-ish B.C., and the temple is constructed roughly four years later. So yay, two books down, and the temple is rebuilt. Everyone's happy, right? Well, 
sort of. Um, we fast forward a couple of decades. Um, we're not entirely sure how many more years before Malachi take, is taken place. Um, the temple is already rebuilt in Malachi. Temple worship has been going on for some time, and disappointment has set in. And so is that five years? Is that 20 years? Who knows? Um, some commentators will put uh, Malachi as a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, so we're talking you know, 450 or so. Others want to put them just a couple of decades after, um, after Haggai and uh, Zechariah, so you know, could be as early as 500, so somewhere in that range. Personally, I think this is maybe the next generation of people. But when we get to Malachi, uh, the temple has been rebuilt. Life has fully restarted under the Mosaic Covenant. Sacrificial system is fully back underway, and it's not going well. Now, when I say it's not going well, again, having spent weeks and weeks and weeks together in the Old Testament, you might be tempted to think that this is not going well in the you know, big, sinful, you know, sacrificing kids to demonic idols again, you know, theft, prostitution, deceit, the sorts of things that we've seen over and over and over again in these classes. And the answer is no, that's really not what Malachi is preaching against. Those things may have been occurring, but Malachi is addressing a people who really seem to be going through the religious motions. And so it's, it's the temple's been rebuilt, they're doing the stuff, and they're slowly but surely getting more apathetic, uncaring uh, as they do it. Um, disappointment seems to be setting in. Uh, uh, unmet expectations seem to be setting in. And I think that's, that's a critical piece of understanding as to what may be happening in Malachi. So again, we're talking about returnees, right? And so even in the context of, say, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, folks who are preaching about the, um, uh, the, the exile or preaching to the exiles, in all of those books, there's this tinge of future hope, isn't there? God is going to bring his people back. There's going to be a restoration. There's going to be something big and amazing that happens. Even Zechariah, again, if we were to pause and read through it, you would see this, this grand future restoration language. So even to the people who are ultimately in the process of rebuilding the temple, there, there, is, there is a renewed expectation that God is going to be doing something. Um, and very likely, when Cyrus issued his initial degree to return to the land, people thought, this is it, it's time, it's ready to go. Um, but they got back to the land and they suffered the hardships that we've already covered. There was no new Davidic king, there was no new era of prosperity. Again, they had famine, they had, they had, they had drought. Um, the day of the exaltation of the people of God did not come and um, it's also likely probable, given Haggai and Zechariah and kind of what those books say and God's promise of, of blessing and, again, a future day of restoration and exaltation, it's possible that they thought, okay, maybe, maybe it's the temple. Like, we got back to the land, that's fine, but we need to build the temple. When we do that, then the great day is going to come. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, Nothing happens. Uh, they get this smaller, puny temple, no second David. And, and the cherry on the Disappointment Sunday is that all of those, you know, nations that have oppressed Judah, um, you know, including the one that still technically owns them, nothing bad has happened to them. Yes, Babylon fell, and yes, there was some civil war within Persia, but they're going strong. 
and they've got another two, three hundred years of rule over Judah left to come. And so they're, it's, not looking, it's not looking like God's promises of this, this big and glorious day are coming to fruition. And so there seems to be complacency, disappointment. The people seem to be going through the motions, the sacrifices, religious ceremonies. They, they literally, well, again, you see this in Malachi, they begin to be seen, as the people, seen by the people as wearisome. They begin to wonder what the point of all of it is if the Lord's going to let big pagan evil empires like Persia remain and nothing good is going to happen to them. So Malachi, we see some of that creep in to their practices. The priests begin to stop instructing the people with zeal and diligence. They also begin to uh, start accepting subpar animal sacrifices, right? Um, they, uh, they begin to loosen and relax in who they marry, so they're beginning to marry foreign women, um, which has always been a problem. In fact, it's one of the reasons why the kingdom split in the first place. Um, they begin to divorce their wives. There may be some relationship between those things, too, by the way. It's not explicit if there is, but um, they may be divorcing to intermarry. Um, they, beginning, they begin doubting God's promises of a righteous judgment to come. They begin to question whether God really cares about what's happening in the world. There's a, a, a line in Malachi, you know, is, does, does, is God really a God of justice? Um, they begin to focus more on the world. They're withholding their tithes. They're keeping their money for themselves. And so what we see in Malachi is the beginning of what may be sort of a cancerous growth in the people of God. And it hasn't got to the place yet where they have gone back to Jeremiah-esque sins. And so Malachi is, is sort of an intervention. You know, he's, he's, he's being sent in to diagnose the sins, to call the people back from their apathy, and to remind them of who God is and what he is ultimately going to do, and basically telling them to be patient. And that are those three books in a nutshell. We have that context, that situation, Haggai and Zechariah primarily called in to encourage the people to rebuild the temple and to be faithful to what God has called them to, to reconstitute the religious life of, of Israel. And then Malachi is a intervention to prevent the people of God from greater and greater backsliding and sin. <sighs> Make sense? Any questions on that at all? No questions? Okay. Uh, yes, excellent. You mentioned Nehemiah, so that's like 100 years later, Nehemiah. So did it, I know Nehemiah brought the people back to, or he heard about the walls being down, but was the temple still? I can't remember now. Nehemiah. Yeah, no, it's great. So, so Ezra is, is, is temple guy, Nehemiah is Jerusalem guy. Um, and so that's kind of the distinction. So don't quote me, but they, they show up like 444 BC, like roughly right around there. Nehemiah is like a decade after Ezra. Um, but, but yes, ultimately, Nehemiah is a governor of Judah. Ezra is a, a priest. They, and so Ezra is concerned. Um, I mean, he, he, he comes back after the temple is rebuilt. His book is concerned the first half with the – I'm going to stop shaking my coffee. Um, he, the first half is concerned with um, the rebuilding of the temple um, and then sort of the – the, the reformation of, of religious life again, reminding them of the law. Um, 
Nehemiah deals with actually a lot of the same issues that we see in Malachi, but worse. And so it does not appear that Malachi is successful. Um, or if he took place like 50 years beforehand, maybe he was successful, but their kids were not. Depending on how you date it, it would obviously change the color of things a little bit. Tim. So you've got Ezra like 80 years after Haggai? I have Haggai in 520, and depending on, because Ezra covers actually a pretty yeah, long right, time, right? So the first four chapters are um, contemporaneous with Haggai, 100%. The back half is afterwards. Yeah, Ezra doesn't show up until the back half of the book. Other questions? Speaking of dates, um, if you look at your handout on... Um, on page two there under item three, I messed up the dates. Um, so I think it says that Haggai and Zechariah are 524. Make that four a zero, pretty please. They, they show up a few years after that. Um, they actually show up in 520. Um, but in your notes there, um, you know, I, 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 we have the dates for, for the books. Um, you'll, you'll notice as you kind of glance down to um, uh, Zechariah, or, wow, something didn't print. Uh, as, you, uh, as you glance down at, uh, at Malachi, there's a pretty big range there. Um, the earliest date that I've seen is 520. The latest date that I've seen is somewhere contemporaneous with Ezra and Nehemiah, um, so 500 to about 450. But Haggai and Zechariah are on the scene at the same time. Also there in your notes, I put the structure of the books uh, to be helpful. Um, you can see you know, it's really just two chapters for, for Haggai. Um, he, you know, commands the people to rebuild the temple. Um, the people obey in that book. Um, as they obey, then there's the encouragement not to despise the smaller temple. Um, God promises them blessings for the rebuilding. And then there's sort of a, like a quasi-epilogue um, where promised favor is shown to Zerubbabel, who is the current governor of Judah at the time. Um, but as you can see, that book, like, as straightforward as humanly possible, rebuild the temple. Um, and that's why, just for the sake of fun, why we uh, spent so much time on the introduction, because if you read that book, this is a one-time, not-repeated issue in Israel's history, right? I mean, it's the only time they were told to do this, the only time they failed to do it. It's never going to I mean, happen again. And so, um, you know, it's hard to see that book as, like, directly applicable. But when you see it in the context of are they doing what God told them to do versus their struggles with daily life, it becomes a lot more applicable. Um, now, Zechariah is infinitely more complicated. Um, Jer Jerome, an early church father, said, Zechariah is the most obscure of the minor prophets, and he is not wrong. Zechariah, at least their first half, is like the revelations of the Old Testament. I can literally see, like, John and Zechariah, like, commiserating why they got the weird books in the Bible. Um, they, and, and, and there's, in fact, there's, there apparently is quite a few allusions that John actually makes to, to Zechariah um, in the book of Revelations. Uh, but this oversimplified outline in your notes there, so you have the, the authority of the word of God, which is the, the opening preamble of the book. It's followed by eight visions that Zechariah has at night. Um, then there is this uh, interesting uh, uh, vision of a crown for uh, the, the high priest, um, and then there's a sort of a question. Folks come from Babylon and say, hey, we've been like fasting every month for, for, for uh, quite some time now. We're in exile. Should we continue to do that now that we're back in the land or you guys are back in the land? And so 
God promises moving them from fast or fe- yeah, fasts to feasts, from, from despair to glory. Um, and then 9 to 14, it is a complicated, beautiful, amazing um, section of scripture. And like, it's essentially the New Testament in a nutshell. Um, it's, 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 you've got passages talking about Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, um, uh, references to him taking away sin, his second coming. Like it's, it's, it's packed with, uh, with great things related to the New Testament. Um, now I did say that Zechariah was about the temple um, and it's true, that's mostly in like the night vision stuff. In fact, the structure seems to indicate that the temple is, is central to his argument. Um, so it's the first half of Zechariah that's really about the, 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 the temple. Um, but again, Zechariah is not solely about the temple. Um, and I also note that Zechariah encourages the people to build the temple in a different way. Haggai is straightforward. Your command is to do this. You are not doing this. Therefore, change. Zechariah, um, is, he's, he's more showing the people these fantastic visions um, of, of um, so God showing Zechariah the fantastic visions that he's recording. And I think what's happening here is, is Zechariah is really kind of intended to show the people that rebuilding the temple is not a simple public works construction project. Um, it's not merely, you know, a structure that needs to be there uh, in, in, um, um, in Jerusalem, that there is something bigger and supernatural going on behind the scenes, that the temple is integral to God's purposes, um, and that this is more than the mundane. Um, and I think that's actually why uh, Zechariah is given these, these crazy visions. Remember, when God communicates something in the Old Testament, the mode in which he communicates is never accidental. There's a reason why he chose night visions as opposed to straightforward communication like he did with Haggai. Um, and I think this, what we're seeing here in Zechariah is that God really wants the people to know something bigger is going on. This is not merely about putting stone on stone. This is part of a supernatural reality. It's kind of like evangelism, right? I mean, if I were to preach the gospel to someone or in, a, in a conversation and that person were to come to saving faith, from any outsider's perspective, that just looks like a conversation between two people. I said stuff, they heard, they listened, they responded. There's no difference between that conversation optically than any other in human history. But behind the scenes, in that person's heart, something big and glorious and supernatural is happening. And so I think that's kind of like the Zechariah to the Haggai. Straightforward Haggai, big picture Zechariah, if that helps. Um, now Malachi, skipping on to Malachi, um, he ha- his book is structured around six disputations. Um, essentially, there are six places where um, the, the people are falling into sin, um, uh, they're falling into to apathy, neglect, and in each one of those, God calls them out on it. Those six are listed there for you. Um, we're going to come to the very end of Malachi at some point because there's a little bit of a question as to how to fit the last three verses in. But um, six disputations is the fundamental structure of Malachi. Questions on that so far? We're going to jump into the books now and kind of take them one by one. But is there any questions or comments or concerns with anything I've said so far? Andy, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the people knew how big the temple was. What you know, there were there were some people who 
had come back who had seen the temple in its day. Don't know how old they were. I don't know if they were 90 or 70, if they were, you know, 10 when they left, but they remembered the grandeur of the temple. And so when the people begin to rebuild the temple, the first thing you do is you plot it out, right? Um, you got to know what you're building, and so you kind of mark it on the ground. And when they saw the footprint of it and its size, it was a shadow of its former self. And so you literally had people who wept, and then you had some people who were like, really? We were brought back for this? Like, this is, this is nothing. Um, and so God has to encourage them, don't be disappointed, don't despise it, don't look down on it. It is nonetheless part of my plan. It, it's, it's still exactly what I want, and I'm going to make it my house. Good question. I, if memory serves, um, there in, in it's in Ezra. Um, there is specific parameters um, that the Persians allowed the temple to meet, um, and you know it's like sixty cubits and, and whatever else it was. Um, and so I, I, I think there there may have been administrative limits on what they could build. No, nowhere in any of the prophetic books does it indicate that they chose to build it small, and uh, God doesn't say, you built it small, but I'm still going to redeem it. It was, you know, this is what it is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it mine. Good questions. All right, well, let's jump in. Um, I am definitely going to ask for some readers here. In fact, uh, two for, for Haggai. Can I get a volunteer, just to put a finger in it for now, for chapter one, verses two to four? Go Tim, and then Greg, you get the second one. You get uh, 5 to 11, pretty please. You didn't volunteer, but uh, volunteering for that, yeah. <laughs> All right, so 1 to 2, oh, Tim, sorry, 1, 2 to 4 is Tim, and 5 to 11 is Greg. Um, so again, transitioning to Haggai, um, you know, we're, we're going to go into some themes, interpretive issues, helpful passages for each of these books. Again, I'm going to say so much less than these books deserve, just in the sake of time and an ability to get through them. Um, and, and, and again, this is also fundamentally about the temple. We've beat that horse to death. Um, but there are, are two themes or concepts that are worth drawing our attention to that I think are helpful to really see the applicability of these books in our lives. I put them both there in your outline. The first one is the necessity to prioritize God's commands. So, Tim, do you mind reading that passage? Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So, perfect. As we as we discussed already, there there's there's a lot kind of going on in the people's people's lives, um, and it's obviously drawing their attention away from what. God had called them to do. They were prioritizing getting their own houses in order before prioritizing, instead of prioritizing getting God's house in order. Um, and, you know, from a human perspective, it would be really easy for the people of the day to let themselves off the hook, right? I mean, you have Samaria to the north, which has been an established kingdom for quite some time. It's an administrative power center in the area. Um, and they are, Ezra tells us, actively bribing, you know, local officials to, to stop the temple from being built. So you've got political and monetary opposition. You've got the fact that the returnees are struggling with their own you know, lives and livelihoods. 
it would be really easy, I think, for us to imagine the people rationalizing away um, what to prioritize. And, you know, as, as we all know, all things can happen in life. Sometimes it feels like those things can, can be excuses uh, or can excuse our failure to obey. But, of course, they don't. When God commands something, it's our job to do it, regardless of whether or not the circumstances look like they're favorable. Um, and so it's a, it's a reminder that despite all of the realistic, real, actual, painful things that may have been going on that stopped the rebuilding of the temple or it looked like they, they could have stopped, been impediments to stopping it, God is clear. I gave you a direction. Follow it regardless. Um, second point, pursuit of gain over God leads to loss. Um, Greg, can you read that passage, please? 5 to 11. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the ground, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So pretty easy and straightforward passage because the people pursued their paneled houses over God's house. He has result, it has resulted in God withholding the good of the land from them. And that's kind of the, the principle here. Uh, pursuit over our own gain leads to loss. Um, you know, it's like someone who at their job cheats to get ahead, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie or, or steal or whatever else to get that promotion. Like, it, it, it may look like it bear fruits for a little while, but it is ultimately to our detriment. Um, when we pursue our own wants, preferences, or perceived needs over what God has commanded, it is always to our hurt. Um, Tim. No, it's a great point. And I think, I think too, when we, when we read to that point, when we read the Old Testament, right, like it's, it's easy to see Israel, Judah, in the lens of, you know, the big horrifying sins. I mean, going back to Jeremiah, I mean, rampant violence, deceit, and theft, literal sacrifice of their children to demonic idols. I mean, you, you, can, you can list a bunch of, like, horrifying things in, in your head of, of sin, and chances are in Jeremiah there's a box checked for what the people of God were doing. Um, and certainly the Northern Kingdom was doing just as bad. And so 
you know, we can think of it in those in those terms, and then we can get to like you know Haggai or or Malachi where it's toned down, it's still religious, they're still going through doing the things they're they're largely supposed to be doing, or there's excuses like you know. I need to I need to have a house for my family and those sorts of things that that are are, are we'll call them like lesser looking sins or we'll call them things that that maybe are politer uh, you know going back to Jerry Bridges book respectable sins you know that kind of thing God still cares about that like none of this stuff is outside of of his of his you know he's not only interested in the horrifying stuff and leaves the light stuff over here he cares about holiness and his people and obedience and his people full stop. And Haggai is a, a good reminder of that, especially in that context of kind of what's going on in the day. When you understand that context, you realize, yeah, I, I don't get to slack off. I don't get to be apathetic. I don't get to say, well, I'm supposed to be obeying, but, you know, I got to go mow the lawn. Like, maybe you do, but, but where's your heart at? What are your priorities? What does that look like in your life? Okay, um, sake of time moving on. Any other questions or comments related to, to Haggai? It's short, so we're going to spend the shortest amount of time here. All right, let's move on to Zechariah. So Zechariah, and we'll start with some of these interpretive difficulties. I'm, we're going to work through some of them, um, but uh, it's, it's worth pointing out. In fact, I would encourage everybody just to turn to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. We're going to look at one particular night vision um, in, um, in verses 6 to 11. Zechariah 5, 6 to 11. So let me read um, this one. And uh, it says, so the, the, he, I guess I should have included verse 5. Uh, Zechariah, verse 5 says, The angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. So Zechariah says, I said, what is it? And the angel said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked to me, where are they taking the basket? And he said, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Super clear and straightforward, right? Everyone got, we're all good? No, no, we can just move, no, okay. Um, there are questions, obviously, that come up with this. Um, you know, question one, um, how, how do we view the elements and the imagery in the vision? For example, those ladies with stork's wings, are they symbolic of something, or are they the first and I think only female angels in the entirety of the Bible? Um, someone's got to make that interpretive call, right? I have no idea, by the way. I'm posing that as a question. If you know the answer, let me know. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to walk, work through some of those things. Um, the, the other question, and it's, it's really deeply tied into interpreting, interpreting these, uh, past, these visions, is the chronology. When did they take place? Is this a vision of something that has happened, that is in the process of happening, or will yet happen, or some combination therein? 
So in this particular vision, for example, the wickedness of the land is personified um, as a woman who is being carried away to Shinar. Now, Shinar is another term for Babylon. So wickedness of the land being carried away into Babylon is maybe the, the main thrust of this particular vision. Now, some commentators have argued that this is a um, pictorial of the exile, um, that this is what God did in removing the wickedness from the land. He took it and he brought it to Babylon, um, in which case then the point of this vision would be to clearly state God's intent in the exile in the first place. Uh, namely, that, uh, that God showing Zechariah that the intent of the exile was to purge Judah of their sins. Um, alternatively, you could see this as a future purge of the wickedness of the land, um, either in what Jesus accomplished on the cross or what he does in the second coming, in which case the reference to Babylon would um, merely be as a place that is far off, kind of like as far as from the east uh, is to the west, so far as I have removed your sins from you, you know, that kind of concept, and Babylon is just a, you know, being carried to Babylon would be a very familiar picture to them, so of course God's going to use it. So a couple of different ways that you can interpret that, either as a past event or something that God is yet to do. Um, now, personally, in this particular case, I actually, I like the, uh, the latter explanation, that this is a future purge, um, not a hill I necessarily want to die on, but... Um, you know, just for the sake of interpretation, God disciplined Judah absolutely through Babylon, but only a portion of the people were actually removed to Babylon, and it was the smaller portion at that. And in no way, shape, or form that I can recall in Jeremiah or anywhere else where the portion that were removed were the worst of the worst. Um, and so it's, it's, I have a hard time imagining that a small number of exiles constitutes the wickedness of the land being removed. Um, but um, that's kind of point one. Point two is in the context of Zechariah, especially in chapters 9 to 14, uh, we have a ton of focus on the future and on Jesus. So it does make sense to see the earlier chapters have that flavor as well. For example, um, let's see if you recognize this passage from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, um, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Anybody recognize where that's from? What was that? Yeah, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, and so Zechariah is absolutely explicitly talking about Jesus, especially in the later chapters. So again, it is possible, um, probable, um, at least in, and we'll cover this in a second, uh, typological format that the night visions are pointing to Christ. Um, but regardless of how you interpret that particular one, there are clearly visions, these night visions, that have both an immediate um, fulfillment as well as a future fulfillment. So Turn over to Zechariah chapter 6. This is 9 to 13. Can I get a volunteer to read this one pretty, please? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, 9 to 13. Chapter 6, 9 to 13. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is the branch. 
For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build a temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So in this particular case, um, this is actually an allusion to Jeremiah 33, verses 15 to 18. Um, and it's, it's a, an actual high priest. Joshua is the high priest at the time who is given uh, honor in a royal or kingly way. Now, that's weird in the context of the Old Testament. Um, you know, the line of David um, is not a priestly line. Um, and, and so, like, those, those, those really, you know, shouldn't be, shouldn't be commingled in that way. Um, and, and at the time when this vision is given, Judah doesn't have a king. They have a, they have a governor, um, even though Joshua, um, or even though, um, sorry, um, they, they, have, they have a governor. Um, and so what we see here is we see the, the, the priestly office and the kingly office symbolically commingled um, in the, the, the actual man who's going to preside over the rebuilding of the temple. Um, but in this picture is also a picture of the Messiah, who off- occupies the office of prophet, priest, and king. Um, and so we have a real-time event that has symbolic overtures that are pointing to what Jesus is ultimately going to accomplish in his person, which is the, the definition of typology, a, like a, a, a present-day or, or short-term future fulfillment that ultimately points at a greater fulfillment in Jesus. And so... We see that here in, in Zechariah. Um, I would argue that that's probably the, the right interpretive lens for, for many of the visions. Um, but um, in any event, that's, that's kind of the interpretive difficulties of the book. These visions are hard. Um, if someone wanted to take a different interpretation of what I just said, like that's, that may be fair. We could talk about it. Um, but they are not simple and straightforward. Uh, questions on that? Maybe just Gurich, can I give a, a brief plug about Please. Uh, these are great. These last two visions are great examples of why we do this course. First of all, so Jason can explain everything that's hard in the Testament to us. But what I what I more mean primarily is the Bible and the Old Testament in particular is a kind of text where the more you know it, the more you know various parts and the whole, the easier that will unlock the harder parts. So you know, this idea of Shinar, and, you know, that, that's a reference back to Babel, the Tower of Babel, and, you know, there's these symbolic things that the better you know the story and the way these elements get recycled, and the later authors are drawing on prior references, and this idea of the offices of priest, king, and, you know, prophets, the other kind of messianic office, that the authors are kind of trafficking in these concepts that if you've been reading the Old Testament for years, you may not intuitively get it, but it kind of, it's pretty easy to see, to think in terms of these offices if you've been sort of conditioned by experience in the Old Testament. So just to say, that's part of why we're doing this, is to get everyone a, more of a running start with the Old Testament, because the deeper you learn the whole, you'll get to some of the most obscure parts, and you're, you're so much better equipped to at least have a plausible path forward with that is actually a fantastic segue into this next section. Um, uh, so I, I literally just want to like close it off and go right there. But um, are there any any other comments, uh, it, you know, any responses to what Tim said, or or anything else so far in interpretive difficulties in, in Zechariah? 
Okay, you know where I'm going. Okay, uh, let's go to this next section, which is extensive New Testament usage. Um, I'm not going to say anything like super novel here, but it is worth pointing out, especially in chapters 9 to 14. Uh, there are quite a few passages that are used in the New Testament. Um, Zechariah is drawn on, especially as it relates to the, the back portion of Jesus's life. Um, I didn't do any exhaustive comparisons, but I've seen numbers thrown out, like 40 references or illusions. That, that seems to be taking into consideration um, viewing sort of John having references that seem to be allusions to what Zechariah's visions also say, um, but quite, a, quite an extensive use of Zechariah in the New Testament, ultimately. Um, in, your, in your notes there, I put a couple of um, uh, specific examples. So you've got uh, Zechariah 9.9 that's used in Matthew and John. You've got Zechariah 11, which is used in Matthew, and then 12.10, which is used in John uh, 19.37. And to illustrate the point of not merely, I mean, <clears throat> if, if you were reading John 19, and, and we're going to, I'm actually just, you know, it, 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 that John 19.37 says, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Super straightforward and simple. You know, you don't need to know it was Zechariah to know what that means. It was obviously a prophecy about the suffering of the, of the Messiah. And so, like, you know, John's use of that reference is super clear. But, oh, my goodness, is there value in going back to Zechariah and looking at what was actually said. Um, and so let, let's read that really fast together. This is Zechariah 12.10, um, or Zechariah 12.10. And so this is what John is, is, is referencing in 1937. Um, and just, just listen to it really carefully. I'll make some observations. 1210, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for his firstborn. So first and foremost, obvious things, yes, John is appropriately referencing Zechariah. Um, Zechariah, in writing 12.10, is writing something that is prophetic about the Messiah. Um, but when you actually look at the language itself, I mean, look, you, you, have, you have, note the firstborn and the only child language. That's, that's very explicitly used of Jesus in the New Testament. He's the only begotten son of God. Um, he is the, the firstborn over all creation, says Paul. Um, these, are, these are explicit references to Jesus. But my favorite is, 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 the, is the, the, the pronouns, right? When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. That's interesting language. God is the one speaking here. When they look on me, on him who they have pierced. Um, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they'll weep bitterly over him as one weeps for his firstborn. So in the context, God is the one who is pierced, and it's also someone else. I mean, this is explicitly, beautifully Trinitarian language. It's just sort of like flatly there here in Zechariah. So very much worth, you know, seeing these references to Zechariah in the New Testament. Go back to the passages and look through them. This is, this is worth lingering on at the end of the day. Um, which, I'm just going to make this next point, is, you know, there is extra value in lingering in Zechariah 9 to 14. Uh, Tim, in his comment, said, for those who may be discouraged by the night visions, that's a real thing. They're hard. They're confusing. Um, 
get through them because 9 to 14 is excellent and beautiful and worth a read. Don't get discouraged by the first half of Zechariah and then sort of like skim through the back half. Um, 9 to 14 is way more straightforward. It's a lot. It's where a lot of the Christocentric material is, um, and uh, it's, it's worth the price of admission if you have to slog through eight chapters of other stuff, I promise. So... Um, Questions on that? Anything on Zechariah 12? Because that, that was mind-blowing when you see it, I think, at least, um, nerding out on it a little bit. Um, or anything at all uh, on, on Zechariah so far? All right. We will do Malachi. We can do it quick, I promise. Um, okay. So for, for Malachi, um, if turn with me to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. Um, As I mentioned, Malachi is really structured around six disputes between God and his people, and they have generally a similar structure, every single one of them. I'm going to read this one, and I'll just kind of point out the the fourfold structure of it. Uh, Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts." So ignoring the fact that this has been ridiculously abused by prosperity gospel preachers like everywhere under the sun, um, the structure of this particular disputation for our purposes is an assertion made by, about God. I, the Lord, do not change there in verse 6. An accusation uh, of what the people are doing. Um, I wanted to make this alliterative, so the next word is abjuration. An abjuration, which really just means defense. You know, they, they, and the defense comes in the form of a question. Um, I mean, like, how shall we return? How have we robbed you? They, they, they seem to be hypothetically perplexed. Um, and then God, after they, they raise that, uh, that defense of question, uh, he then, you know, makes the argument about what they're doing and what they need to do. Um, and so you get a, basically a statement about God, an accusation, God presenting a challenge by the people to the accusation in the form of a question, and then God supporting his accusation. That's the structure of each one of these disputations for the most part. Um, And so a couple things to note as you're going about this. Um, Again, each disputation has a topic and a principle about God. You'll see that generally in each one of them. Um, The the very first one is that God loves Israel. You'll see... um, um, you know, um, I do not change. I'm a God of justice. I am Father. I am Creator. So you, you see, you see these these sort of s- statements talking about the character of God. This is God presumably drawing the people's attention to who He is in the context of then disputing with them over the the substance of of their issue. 
Second, um, you know, it, it does at least seem to appear, or give the impression, that people are ignorant of their problems. Um, this is how all of it is framed. God accuses them of something, and they're like, wait, really? How am I doing that? What am I doing wrong? I, I'm confused. Um, which is, um, I don't know if it's necessarily unique in the Old Testament. Um, and it's possible that's just a framing device, but, but I, I take it at face value. It appears that the people are legitimately ignorant that they're doing something wrong. Um, and just by way of sort of modern application and illustration, imagine if I showed up to every single RCG function, every single one, Sunday morning, evening services, Thursday night or you know, whatever, men's, uh, men's Bible study, you know, Greg's got something, I'm, I'm here for work days, I'm here, I'm on time. Uh, but during the sermon, I'm playing Candy Crush on my phone. Um, you know, during the prayer, my mind, my mind is wandering, you know, I, I might be doing this, but you know, you can kind of see me open my eyes and look around, and if, if you're really paying attention. Um, when we have conversations before or after service or functions, I'm asking you, you know, how the latest football game went or, or you know, whatever other non-spiritual things. Um, I'm here, I'm present, but man, am I checked out, right? Um, and one of our perceptive elders notices this, and I can, you know, they, 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 they say, hey, you know, Jason, you, you, you're present, but you don't really seem to be present. You can imagine a person saying, wait, whoa, whoa. I'm participating, I'm here, like, like I, I'm not missing anything, I'm on time, I'm engaging with God's people, like, what do you mean I'm checked out? And you can kind of see, imagine that person sort of, I don't know, um, uh, deluding themselves in their own heart as to kind of what's going on. In the same way, it appears that that's where God's people are at. They don't seem to see that they are sliding into problem territory, and if they're going through the motions-ism and apathy, um, continues that the result will be major backsliding. And I think that's a, a wonderful application for us. We may not have problems with tithing. Um, you know, we might have problems with giving. Um, but at the same point in time, what was really being shown here is that our heart condition matters, not just our actions. Um, it also is worth noting that um, our heart conditions are not, you know, all or nothing. Um, it's not like I'm in rampant sin and 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 over here or I'm 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 perfectly godly I mean there's there's obviously places in between and God cares about the disposition of our hearts even even in the the secret things that we're doing um questions on that I know I'm going really fast I apologize but yes Randy the comment it yeah. sounds like the same way the Pharisees missed the mark putting up boxes on their heads and scriptures on their wrists no that's not what was <clears throat> Yeah, uh, if you want, if, yeah, like a almost like a proto-Pharisee sort of thing. Um, yeah, there's it's 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 externalism without the heart at the end of the day. Other other questions or comments? We got one more thing to go through with Malachi. All right, let's do this. Um, Malachi four four to six. We are end there mostly because the Bible ends there, or the Old Testament rather ends there. Um, the need for changed hearts is what you see in your notes. I don't know if I would call this a major theme of Malachi, but it is definitely worth pointing out, considering, again, that's how the book and the Old Testament ends. Um, and, and really here, this is, this is just sort of a reminder, um, God's reminder to the people that they need changed hearts, that um, 
the exile, you know, did not solve everything. They didn't learn their lesson and somehow become transformed and better. They have come back, they immediately disobeyed, and then, uh, you know, years later, a couple years later, decades later, generation later, whatever it is, in the time of Malachi, they're back to the same thing. And to Tim's point, even in Malachi, you kind of see that language of the curse again. In fact, in Malachi, um, three different covenants are referenced. Covenants with the Father, Mosaic Covenant, and the Levitical Covenant um, are all referenced as being broken, uh, or at least in danger of being broken by the people here. Um, So, fittingly, Malachi ends with these words. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So going back to what I said earlier, to the point, to the extent that the people are struggling with expectations, God promised some big, you know, or as he says here, you know, great and awesome day of the Lord. We're back in the land. The temple's being rebuilt. What happened? God's giving them a marker. Elijah's going to come back first. So temper your expectations. It's not going to happen until that occurs. But he also reminds them that they should be looking for because of their need of changed hearts. God not only exhorts them to refocus on the law of Moses in verse 4, but he points them to their need uh, for changed hearts in verses 5 to 6. They should be looking forward to and recognizing their need now is for their hearts of stone to be changed into hearts of flesh. Um, and it's you know, kind of like a doctor writing a prescription almost, right? A prescription is not a fix. The medicine is a fix. A prescription points out that you need to go to the pharmacy to get the fix. A prescription is essentially a seal that you're sick. Someone's agreeing that you are ailing. In the same way, this is pointing out a future remedy in a way that reminds that the remedy is still necessary. And if you think about it, there is no more fitting way is there to end the Old Testament that. Um, And that's probably a really good way of ending our series on the Old Testament at that as well. But uh, in the two minutes that we have remaining, um, any questions, comments, concerns, anything at all about this class? Um, Tim. Are you like the Haggai of the state of California? (laughs) (laughs) I, I... No, probably not. I'm actually not entirely sure what you mean by that, so I'm just going to go with no. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, less, less cursing language uh, usually in my memos, but yes, I do make sure they're built. Okay, ah, yes. Is um, John the Baptist the spirit of Elijah that this refers to? I should have said that. Yes, he absolutely is. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ. That is what Malachi is pointing to. That's how the New Testament writes concerning John. Great point. Yes, Jerry. It's a good reminder to keep all of us thinking about how we sometimes have these expectations, too, of envisioning that smaller temple. You know, things come into our lives that we just think is maybe not good enough or not what we expected, and how God is telling us, don't get discouraged, don't get disappointed. This is good enough, and just do what I tell you to do, and uh, be grateful. Yeah, I, 
I, I love, I, I struggled with, with, with Zechariah a little bit in light of ha, uh, Haggai, but I love them together because, to Sherry's point, do the thing you're supposed to do and know that there's a bigger picture. Something else is going on. It's all a part of God's plan. There is nothing incidental, accidental, pointless. It all matters. It's all from him. Um, those two prophets together give that, give that picture, I think, pretty clearly. All right. JJ, was that a hand? Were you just yawning? No, okay. <laughs> Sorry, JJ. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray, and uh, we will end our morning. Father, thank you again for this class and for this series on the Old Testament. It is a pleasure to be walking through uh, uh, in front of you with your people, Lord, the, uh, the scriptures which can make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. I just pray that you would um, edify us, that we would see uh, uh, you know, practical, helpful lessons from these books, Lord, um, and that we would be focused and drawn in our hearts to our Savior all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.